Welcome to Food Chat, a weekly show that's all about food production, including farming, ranching, processing, and basically all things involved in getting food from the field to your plate. Now, let's get you reconnected to your food, and here are your hosts, Greg Bloom and Chef Jackson Lamb. Talk about an uphill battle, 2,000 acres of beans and cattle. He don't ever get rattled. He just goes to the sun goes down. Hey, this is Greg Bloom with Food Chat. We're so glad you're here listening to Chef Jackson Lamb in studio. Hey, Chef Jackson, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Greg. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. I can't believe how fast the time is going by. We're already into the kind of the fall weather at the cooler nights. It's great, you know. I didn't think we'd ever get out of August. No, I know. It was kind of a rough month, but here we are. And, uh, you know, today's show is uh, about beef production. You know, there's uh, a lot to know about beef production. And you know something about beef production. We've actually, you know, worked on that together in the past. And I think beef production is very interesting uh, because it's multifaceted. It's not like one family or one company raises the animal from birth to the slaughter plant. There's a lot of people in between. So, And the amount of time involved to uh, get to market. Yeah, right. So, you know, typically with a chicken, it's, you know, weeks old, maybe 12 to 16 weeks, depends on the size of the bird. Uh, with pork production, those pigs are four to five months old. I know that because I used to raise pigs for 4-H as a farm kid. But beef production, these animals are three years old, four years old. So, you know, our guest coming on today, uh, Dan, I'm going to ask him, you know, well, how, you know, how do you forecast what the beef market's going to be doing in three years? Well, they can't. They don't know. <laughs> so, that's a hard thing to predict, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, one thing I do know about the beef production cycle is it goes up and down on a kind of a three- or four-year curve. So um, it's pretty predictable, too. Like, ranchers know that I'm going to have calves this year, but they won't be ready to go to market for three or four years, and they kind of try to hit the cycle. It's sure. really supply and demand. That's really, you know, demand drives prices in most you know, entities, and, and it's the same as, as in this. So Well, that is true, but we've also been hearing in other parts of the country where the drought is tremendous, a lot of uh, ranchers are culling their herds because uh, the lack of water, the lack of feed. Correct. You know, before we have our guests come on, I think it'd be good to ask you, because you're a chef and you're, uh, you've cooked a lot of beef in your career and you've taught classes teaching beef. Beef is one of the proteins that's a little harder to figure out because there's over 105 items that come off the carcass it's not like a chicken whether there's a whole chicken or a chicken breast or a thigh or a leg it's a little harder to know how to cook some you know do you do you sous vide it do you braise it i mean a lot of people have messed up beef before like yeah i put that brisket on the barbecue and grilled that thing to 500 and it was terrible you know greg i was out last week and uh, i had a beef dish at a local hotel and this was so delicious, I couldn't believe it. I didn't need a knife either. So this was a great example of a beef that's been cooked low and slow. Had a great flavor, had a great color, and I absolutely loved it. I was going to call the chef to say, how exactly did you do that one? Right. Yeah, that would be good to know. I, I Most chefs today are pretty transparent, aren't they? They'll tell you. I mean, is that a chef's secret oh i think that uh 
prior to the Food Network, those were all closely guarded secrets. But with the Food Network coming on in 1995, it made everybody an expert, including the consumer. So as a result, I think that chefs are much more forthcoming with what uh, uh, their techniques are, what recipes they use. And again, today with the Internet and uh, websites, recipes abound. And uh, I think it's a part of the social media thing for chefs to be involved. Well, yeah, and it's interesting that if you look at uh, social media today, like, for example, Instagram, and look at the reels, so many chefs are putting what they're doing right there on the reel, adding music to it. It's very entertaining, but they're really not trying to hide what they're doing. In fact, they're trying to showcase their technique or their, their menu. It's, I love it. It's really kind of fun to watch. Well, it's really it's, uh, it's entertaining, but it is educational as well. Right. So speaking of social media and beef production, uh, you know, it's interesting that a lot of farmers and ranchers, I find, you don't really see them on social media. You see a lot of chefs. Great. You see a lot of restaurant operators. Great. You know, they're trying to get people in the door, right, right. typically. Uh, but you don't see farmers and ranchers posting a lot on social media. There's a few, but not a lot. And I think there's a couple reasons for it. We'll ask uh, our guests today about that at the end. But I think one reason is they're just so busy. You know, they're busy raising animals. They're out on the farm. They're Right now, they're probably baling hay or working on the farm before the cold weather comes. So they just don't really have time like maybe urban people do to, to post on social media and share their life. Well, uh, urban life and rural life are certainly two different types of lives. That's correct. And that's what this show is all about, is helping people to understand food production, how the product gets from the fields and the farm to their plate. And so today we have uh, Dan Timmerman that's going to talk to us about beef production. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Greg, how are you? Good. Good to, good to hear your voice, Dan. Thanks for calling in. I have in studio Chef Jackson Lamb from Metropolitan State University of Denver. Teaches uh, nutrition, culinary, all kinds of great classes there. And uh, we're going to ask you about beef production, Dan, because most of the people that listen to this show are probably urban dwellers. God bless them. Nothing wrong with being an urban dweller, but they just don't know what they don't know about beef production. Uh-huh. And so we're, I'm going to have Jackson start off with the first question. All righty. Thank you. Okay, and good. good morning, Dan. Welcome to the show. And uh, Thanks. All right. Well, you know, we're trying to reach a, a wide audience here, but, you know, to explain the cow-calf backgrounder and feedlot operations. You know, I think the, the average person shopping in King Supers or Safeway just doesn't understand the process uh, from from birth uh, uh, to feedlot to, to store. Can you kind of fill in the gaps there for us? Yeah, I can. So most, when it comes to most what we call beef cattle versus the dairy side, the majority of beef cattle are raised on a ranch. So um, many, many acres of grass uh, where, the, where the, what we call the mama cows have the babies, have the calves, and um, raise them for a while, and then eventually they're transported to different facilities. But the first thing is the, usually a heifer, which is a, a, female, a female cow that has, has never had a calf, um, is bred at about one years old. Um, they're turned out in pasture in general. There's other ways of doing it, like artificial insemination. But as the most part, when it comes to the beef cattle sector, they're turned out to the grass over the summer or depending on the region of the country. And, I mean, the grass season down south is during the winter and out west in such California is also during the winter. And the bulls cover the, 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 the heifers 
or the cows as they get older, as we, we call them. And then they have a nine-month gestation period. And then the calves, depending on when they're, when they're bred, um, are born, oh, generally uh, either in the spring or the fall, depending on the area, like I said, the, depending on the grass seasons. And then the mother raises them for the most part for about six to seven months. And then it's time for the, the calf to um, come off the mother. And during this time, though, while the mother is raising the calf, uh, the bulls are also turned back out for a couple months to rebreed the mother. And then after they're, they are um, weaned off the mother, they're generally brought to a what we call a weaning yard. So the calves are uh, given all kinds of shots. They're given their antiviral shots and all that good stuff and uh, started on feed. And then either from there, they can be finished out. So let's say they are weaned at 500 pounds in another uh, 260 days, they are going to average anywhere from uh, 1,200 to 1,350 pounds in general, depending on the breed, and ready for harvest to the packing plants. Or what many times we do is um, you know, wean those calves, keep them weaned in, on a grow ration, so grow feed for 90 days, and then sometimes they're turned back out to grass, and made into what we call yearlings, so stalkers, and then they come eventually come back in the yards, into the feed yards, and are finished. And then um, they're slightly more mature, so they get a little bigger, and then they're sent to the packers for harvest. So, uh, Dan, the way I understand it is there's the farm or ranch that's doing the cow-calf operation. Sometimes these are smaller operations that don't have large amount of pastures that they own or lease, so you can actually, you know, do okay on a smaller property just doing cow-calf. I have a friend that does that in Texas. He just does cow-calf. So he has the mamas and the bulls, and he does artificial insemination, like you said, and then he has what he calls his cleanup bull out there for the, he calls them the open heifers that didn't get pregnant with AI or the first time when they were bred. So he has this cleanup bull. His name was uh, uh, Spencer, actually. And uh, Spencer's doing his job out there. But then once these uh, calves are born, um, and in Texas, he does them in the fall. They're born in the fall because he's got grass year-round, unlike Colorado, and he doesn't have to give them as much hay as they would up here. Then he um, weans them, like you said, six to eight months later, and then he sells them. He doesn't do anything anymore with them. And then it would go to what you said. That they call that a stalker or a backgrounder. Is that right? So you could go to a background yard where they, where they go straight on feed and pins or to, um, or to bigger feed yards. In general, calves are weaned in a little smaller yard and then either – transferred to a bigger yard or they can put them back out on grass and, and when you're talking about the size of the places yeah i mean i know people that have anywhere from five cows to to i mean twelve thousand. now the twelve thousand aren't all running on one place but um you know i know of ranches that have 35 3500 to 4000 and depending on what part of the country they're in it's a different amount of acres so for instance like um, we operate in Nebraska with our cows in the Sandhills, Nebraska, mostly. And we have, for each cow, what we call cow unit, um, it's about 15 acres. So, um, for instance, we have one ranch that can run 2,200 head of cows, and it's about 33,000 acres. And and then you go from backyard guys that have five or one and run them on a few acres and then supplement them with feed. Um, and then... With these ranches, though, what most people don't realize is 
these are vast, vast grasslands that are unproductive when it comes to farming because of the soils or all such different things. And these these animals, the cattle and sheep and, and goats, um, can trend, can make um, grass basically into protein, which uh, um, is is very I mean is very beneficial and very I mean the grass is going to be there no matter what. So the animals grazing it are the best way use of it or almost only use of it to make these cattle into um, a protein someday that for human consumption. But yeah, you're right, Greg. Um, they'll go to uh, um, either a background or feedlot. And the, but eventually, all the animals end up in feedlots uh, for harvest to the packer. Dan, that's great background there. Um, in fact, my history is up in Potter, Nebraska. A friend of mine had a big uh, ranch up there, and the process is absolutely fascinating. You're absolutely correct. And I like the fact that, you know, you're bringing up the fact that, you know, a lot of this— uh, I don't think the city folk realize that there's a lot of land out there that is really unfarmable, unranchable. I like the way you state that we can be, we're turning, you know, inedible grasses into protein. That's exactly what happens out there. Great job. Yeah, yeah. this isn't irrigated farmland. You know, I, I think they call that uh, term, well, one of the ones I've heard used, Dan, is uh, upcycling. These animals are eating you know, grass and weeds and stuff and turn it into protein that's totally useless for human consumption. It's not like we're going to be growing lettuce out there. This is non-irrigated land that's good for nothing. In fact, it's actually a fire hazard if the animals don't eat it. <laughs> so, Exactly. There's a lot of misinformation out there um, when it comes to rural areas. And, um, and yes, you're right, Greg. It, it, if, 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 it wasn't for, uh, if it wasn't for grazing, there would be massive fires everywhere. So, uh, Dan, I just wanted to ask you, too, you know, a little bit about your background and your family's background. Uh, you know, why there's a lot of other things you could be doing with your life. And, and what you do, I respect so much, is hard work. I've been to your feedlot. I've been to your family's feedlots um, in Nebraska. I mean, it's really a tough job, um, you know, before the day starts, before the sun comes up until it goes down. There's a lot of things you're working on. Why do you do it? I mean, you know, what are the joys and pains of raising cattle? Well, I always did it, so I, yeah, like I grew up in it, and my grandpa's first feedlot was what would be the middle Omaha now, and then my dad and my uncles took it over, purchased a yard just outside of, the, uh, outside of Omaha that they'd purchased in, I believe, the uh, mid, well, my grandpa purchased it in the 60s, and then my dad and my uncles in their 20s started operating it and took over the operation and really, really grew it, but the reason I did it is because I just enjoyed it. I mean, I do have five siblings myself and i grew up in the middle of omaha and rest of five siblings you know they go out and work or they do certain jobs um helping neighbor farmers of the feed yard certain times a year like my brothers they always they walk beans is what it's called before before the roundup ready um where the, they could spray the beans so they have to walk them with uh, just corn knives and cut the weeds but anyway for myself i do it because i always liked livestock I always liked horses, um, and I just and I I also enjoyed the physical work. I enjoyed working. I found when when I was really young, oh about twelve years old, I remember I'd, I'd sit in a tractor and drive it around and thought I was actually doing something. I really wasn't, but um, it just it, and then did just certain things like helping them process the cattle, which is giving vaccines and 
and doing little things or cleaning the tanks and helping take take care of the animals. And to me, I enjoyed it because it it kind of gave me a little rush of accomplishment. And um, um, it, it, I mean, it was a, it was an esteem boost. And then number one, that's number one. Number two is I enjoy being outside. I enjoyed and I enjoyed the animals. And then I, as I got older, I really enjoyed working with horses and um, did some work with those in my late teens and even broke um, from start to finish, broke some horses. And then as I got older, I enjoyed the, it, it's a very, it, it's very adventurous economically wise. It's not for the faint of heart. It can be up and down, up and down. Um, but so I guess I enjoy that thrill of it too. I mean, to me, it's just the thrill and like, you're right, Greg, it's hard work. It can be dangerous work if you're not keeping your head about you. And every day is different. I, Dan, hear criticism now and then from people that, uh, don't really like uh, whatever about beef industry, the industry or the protein or whatever the idea is. But, um, you know, it's mostly family farms that raise these cattle. Like your family does this, and it's not like this is, you know, huge companies, you know, corporate factory farming on the production side of cattle. I mean, there are some big companies that own the packing plants for efficiency's sake that that requires a lot of cash and you know that would be cool if there was a lot more packers in the in the country but as far as can you speak a little bit about you know the the family farms i think i, I read somewhere in a beef journal that ncba put out that there's over 600,000 families in the united states raising cattle and the average herd size is 45 and of course there's some that are 4h kids raising two or three and there's some that are big operations but i guess my question is to you it seems like it takes so much know-how to do what you do you had to grow up in in this to know what to do do you, do you see newbies coming in urbanites that get a degree from csu in agriculture and they enter the beef production industry is that even possible anymore yeah i mean it's possible and when it comes to the ranching side especially on a larger scale um the investment it takes to get in is is nearly impossible uh for instance myself and my siblings we went and looked at a a new cow calf ranch about three months ago, four months ago, and the amount even even with a decent with a good down payment and a decent interest rate that we could have um, secured, it still wouldn't have worked. You couldn't we couldn't cash flow it. Um, so is it hard? It's going to be very very difficult for a young person to get into like the ranching sector to get into the feedlots. Uh, if a person is willing to work, um, understands it and is open-minded, there is some opportunity to get into, like, the feeding industry. Because, I mean, like you were saying, the feedlots are mo There's still, believe it or not, a lot of family feedlots, too, um, or privately owned. There's a few what we call corporate yards. And for, uh, for a young person that has ambition, there's a lot of opportunity to excel well, through those um, and, uh, and, um, and, and, and make and do very well for themselves and move up into upper management up into a, a position of high level um but yes on the on the on the foundation and such the cow calf deal it's it, it's very difficult even farming farming can be very very difficult these land values are overinflated for different reasons and so i mean to your point it, it can be difficult but there's some opportunity dan um you've really been talking a great um a uh, bit about the sustainability of the environmental grasses and all that stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on the claims that feed banks, uh, feed, feedlots are causing environmental damage? Um, I'm sure you have a comment yeah. on that one. I do. I mean, so 
so first thing that it kind of cracks me up. I've told a few people when when first things first when they come to um, people in agriculture and tell us use the word sustainability and 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 you look at them and and I've looked at a few of them. I said apparently you don't understand what we do. For first of all, for ranching and farming, we are the definition definition of sustainability. We sustain the ground and use them year after year after year after year. So when it comes to sustaining, we know how to. I mean, we're the top of the line. Now, because of environmental and the feedlots, I mean, I've read the facts. I've read the numbers. I do know that if you look at agriculture production in the United States, it's a very, very, very small amount of greenhouse emission comparably to the percent. And then if you look at it worldwide, in the United States out of feedlots, we have like, oh gosh, I, I think it's we have 10% of the world's cows but we produce 20% of the world's beef. And United States agriculture is like 0.001. I mean, somebody can fact check me, but I'm sure it's going to be that realm of actual greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So I'm not properly educated on, the, on that. Right. The other thing, Dan, that people don't think through because they just don't know is that uh, this country produces more beef pounds of beef than we did in 1972, so 50 years ago, with less cattle. Well, how do we do that? Well, because feedlots are more efficient and they get the animals bigger. And I love grass-finished beef. I love grain-finished beef. I eat them both. I love them both. But practically, grain-finished beef, the animals, tell me if I'm wrong, Dan, they're younger. They're typically below 30 months, and the grass-finished animals are 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 older because it takes another year or, or two for them to gain that kind of weight. And then I used to work in a plant, a beef processing plant, I'd see the carcasses, you know, hang in there, Dan, and the, the grass-fed ones, you know, God bless the grass-fed beef people. Okay, no, no, no criticism there, but those animals are lighter. The carcasses, even though they're a year older, are much lighter than the grain-fed counterparts. So it's really an efficient way to get beef on the plate to finish them in a, in a, in a feedlot. No, there's not. You, it's exactly, Greg, the, the majority, I believe the average age right in this area is between 20 to 22 months of feedlot finished cattle where you're right grass-fed cattle are well over 30 months and also on the other hand um when it comes to forage versus an animal will emit more methane gases over its lifetime off of forage than it does the corn-based diet i mean for god's sakes when i talk to when people bring up um the the cattle and and environmental concerns, I mean, you realize there was like 80 million head of bison running the, the range from North America into Mexico in the 1800s. I mean, there was, they say there's parts of history where they're well into hundreds of millions. Right. And, yeah, so, I mean, what, I I understand what the concept of why nature or the creation is to blame especially when there was way more bison, uh, multiple times of bison running North America than there ever were cattle. I mean, if you talk about 880 million had a bison running the range, oh, I think in the United States right now we have maybe 45 million head of cows. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, their thing that uh, I've read about is that there is good research now to show that the animals, once they're placed in the feedlot, are, are belching less 
methane because the ruminant animals produce more of that in their rumen when they're eating grass, and so they go to the feedlot, then it cuts back. Uh, so that's one thing people don't realize. They, they don't fart out the methane. They burp out the methane. <laughs> so, uh, yep. you know, th their thing, Dan, is that, you know, I sell beef. I've been selling beef for 30-something years. I export beef. And, you know, when I ask people what they want to eat, uh, whether they're in this country or beyond, they want USDA choice or USDA prime beef. They want high-quality beef, which only comes from doing what you do in the feedlot. So, Dan, now we just have one more question for you, and we're going to be out of time, so I do appreciate your time today. Um, the uh, beef industry complex is complicated. you got the cow-calf, and then you got the backgrounders after that, and then you have the feedlot owners, and then you have the processors. Um, can they all make money at the same time, or do they have to trade years of them actually being profitable and what's it look like now and going into fourth quarter i'll have you kind of wrap up the question with can they all or the show with can they all make money at the same time and then the next question would be what's it look like going into fourth quarter and into next year because i hear supply is going to get tighter and we're looking at higher beef prices yeah. next year well there's so many different variables like when you ask if they make can make money all at the same time yes they can i mean and we've seen we've seen at time that it can um, but there's so many different variables. Like I said, when it comes to the cow-calf producer, depending on what stage they are of ownership in their ground, um, do they have the payments, what the value of the ground was when they bought it. So that's very variable. Uh, can the feedlots and the packers make money at the same time? Absolutely. Is there, is there times where the packer makes pi uh, way more money than the feedlot could ever think of? Yes. Is there times the packer or the packer's losing a lot of money when the feedlot's doing very well? Yes. Um, but I think you're going to find that in all commodities, and it's a cycle of, it's like, so for instance, when you're talking about the fourth quarter, yes, the, the supplies are going to tighten up. The U.S., well, the beef, the, the demand for U.S. beef period over exports and, and just domestic has been very strong. Our exports continue to set record numbers. So, and that gets back to, Greg, the quality of meat that we raise, the prime and choice through feedlots. Um, but when it with that question, there's so many variables, and it can be very complicated. Is it is it possible? Yes, but it just seems to be that, for instance, now these droughts. Yes, the rancher is going to, their calves all of a sudden might go up 50% in price. But that's if you're fortunate enough to have enough cattle on your ranch all of a sudden, and you didn't have to move off a bunch of your mama cows or sell your mama cows based on the fact of these droughts and the lack of grass on your ranch and feed. So, I mean, there's so many different things. But for the fourth quarter, yes, it's going to tighten up because of some of these issues. And then in the next year or two, it's going to be very, very tight because over the last whatever amount of time through dry weather, a lot of cows have, that are, could have still been productive were taken to um, harvest more on the what we call the cow on the cow level which is more turned into lean meat versus fed meat. Very good. Dan, I want to thank you for joining us today on Food Chat. Uh, Greg Bloom and I are here every Wednesday, and uh, we're delighted that you came in today as a guest. Dan, thank you. All right, thanks, guys. Today's show is brought to you by RanchFreshMeats.com. Ranch Fresh Meats sells the highest quality meat to restaurants and directly to you. We've got high-quality USDA choice Angus steaks, beef steaks, and even bison, all produced right here in Colorado. Now, you need to go to ranchfreshmeats.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter where you'll be notified of 
sales. Like, for example, this month we have Wagyu briskets and tri-tips on sale. So great way to kind of go into the fall, still grilling away or smoking away on your smoker outside. So go to ranchfreshmeats.com. We offer free delivery in the Denver metro area and everywhere else, UPS delivery right to your door. Ranchfreshmeats.com. The views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Crawford Broadcasting, the station, management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.